0: Welcome into the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Bernstein, with my partner in crime, Jimmy Bucciolato. Hello, hello, hello. The doctor. Um, the doctor is in. <laughs> uh, today, we're going to talk about uh, breaking news out of New York City. Um, there's a lot of uh, gangland news that's been popping up on our radar the last couple weeks. A lot of it having to do with the Colombo crime family, part of the five families and the Italian mob in New York. Um, and then we'll also touch on some outlaw biker activity that's going on in western new york and uh a brazen broad daylight uh drug world hit that happened this week um that looks like it's vengeance for stuff that had happened back in the 90s so we have a pressure packed show with uh lots of great intelligence to uh break down and do a deep dive into so let's Let's jump right in. A couple weeks ago, uh, big, big headline uh, in the New York Daily News um, about uh, Carmine Persico, the uh, longtime godfather of the Colombo crime family. It came out in a uh, court filing that alleged that uh, Persico was an informant. Um, So there was a lot of conversations about the colombo crime family in this last month uh carmine persico has been dead for about two years now uh served most of his time as a don behind bars kept control of the colombo crime family um from his prison cell uh took power in about 73 74 uh went to prison in 85, I think he was in prison actually in the 70s when he when he became the boss, came out in the late 70s, early 80s, and only had about a four or five-year uh, run of freedom. Um, but uh, it, the the Persicos are definitely a mafia dynasty. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the controversy surrounding that story that was in the New York uh, Daily News. We spoke about it uh, with John Panisi a couple weeks ago, but I want to do a little bit more of that. And
1: a, more has come out since, like, there's been yeah. more reporting, I think, oh, since then. Yeah,
0: I want, I want to do a little um, micro analysis of that. But before we go backwards, let's talk about what happened this week in New York City. The federal government has dropped a major racketeering indictment against the entire leadership of the Colombo crime family. Uh, Andy Mush, who's the godfather, uh, Andrew Russo, who they call Andy Mush, uh, who is or was Carmine Persico's first cousin and was his hand-tap successor. He's 87 years old um, and and has been toppled um, by this racketeering indictment that came down on uh, Monday or Tuesday. Uh, They also... uh, ensnared his underboss, uh, Ben, uh, uh, they call him Benji the Claw. And his consigliere who had never been identified as an organized crime figure before, uh, who's his alleged consigliere, a guy by the name of Ralph, uh, Matteo. Um, there were 15 people, uh, that got brought down in this most recent, uh, racketeering bust. And, uh, it, it definitely made some major waves this week
1: let's let's just mention the the some of the charges here so extortion of a of a labor union um loan sharking drug trafficking and running fake federal occupational safety training programs in the new york area at least those are the ones listed here in this article. i think there's some and there's some union
0: corruption threatening
1: violence it looks like maybe too sorry
0: no there's some union corruption i know that's involved in this uh Tom Farisi, was another high-ranking member of the Columbo's, got caught up a couple months ago in a case that I think ties into this case. Um, it, you know, to me, the first thing that pops out when I look at this is the fact that uh, all the, the lead defendants in this case are all in their 80s. Um, Andy Mush is, is 87. Casalazzo is eighty three and Di Matteo was eighty one. Um they also got uh skinny Teddy Persico who was another name that was being mentioned as uh the future of he's the pa- he's crime part family. of this indictment
1: too? Yes. Well that's a big name. He's a is he's that a- Carmine's nephew or his son?
0: I get confused be- between all the persons. Yeah, so so do I. I think it's his nephew.
1: Okay. Um, because one of the Persico's is in prison, right? Is it Alley well, Boy? Teddy just got out. Teddy just got out. Alley and now Boy, he's indicted again.
0: Alley Boy is in. That is Carmine Persico's son, was a little Alley Boy, I should say. There was two Alley Boys. I know it gets confusing. Yeah. So uh, Carmine Persico, when he was um, on the ascent uh, back in the, in the 60s, had a, a, a brother, Alphonse uh, Persico, who went by Alley Boy and was kind of Junior Persico's right-hand man. And then uh, Junior had a son that was also named Alphonse. I'm guessing that uh, uh, Carmine and the original Alphonse dad was named Alphonse. Right, right. And uh, Alphonse's little alley boy, Persico, who was was Carmine's son, um, was the heir apparent. And is serving a life prison sentence for the murder of Wild Bill Cotolo, who was murdered at the end of that power struggle in the 90s. Um, so they found his body, Cotolo? Yes, they found his body about five years ago, six years
1: ago. Oh, God, I didn't even know that. Because, I th- yeah, I thought for a while it was... He they... disappeared for like yeah.
0: 10, 15 Where'd years. Where they and find his body? They flipped uh, so one of, those one of uh... the Dinos. There was two, Little Dino and Big Dino, uh, who were enforcers uh, for the Colombos, or... Oh, uh, I don't know exactly which one was involved, or they might have both been involved in in the Katola murder, um, and then one of those guys flipped
1: and and led the government to where the bodies were buried. Um, I, I, I'm just curious about this. I, I know it's not the the news, but just since this is sort of a Colombo episode, Katola was a tough guy and a street guy and a a general. In that conflict, was a general of the in, uh, of the insurrection, the insurgents, yeah. the insurgents. So, how did he get caught off guard to be trapped, lured by? Was those some so, of his own guys, or how, who, how no. did he get so lured let, into that? Okay, let's we'll do a uh,
0: we'll do a quick two minute deep dive into what happened with the Colomos in the nineties. Yeah. So, Carmine Persico, uh, at that time, had been in prison for about ten years. And he had named an uh, acting boss, a street boss, uh, Little Vic Arena. And uh, Little Vic Arena had been very close to Carmine Persico. And after a number of years as being the acting boss on behalf of Persico and everyone on the street knowing that Carmine was never coming out of prison, uh, Little Vic Arena turned on on Carmine and tried to rally the family behind him uh, and push Carmine out of uh, the boss's seat when he was behind bars. And he underestimated how much Power uh, Persico still had, even though he was in prison, and there was this very uh, distinct delineation that that broke down in the Columbos in around '91, where you had people that were supporting Arena, who was trying to remove Persico, and then you had people that were supporting Persico, trying to murder uh, the the Arena group. Um, Persico's uh, main lieutenant or or general sergeant at arms. In in the in the war was the Grim Reaper Greg Scarpa, uh, and Arena's sergeant of arms was William Wild Bill Cattolo. Um, The war ended in '93 with with Carmine Persico uh, remaining as the boss, uh, Vic Arena going to prison, Um, and as a goodwill gesture, uh, the Persico faction decided to name Wild Bill. Uh, the underboss. But there's a lot of... There was a setup. ...speculation that it was merely just a a slow play uh, to let uh, Wild Bill lower his guard so they could kill him. So they named Wild Bill, I want to say underboss, in uh, around 95-ish. Um, and then by 99, Wild Bill Cotolo had really established a, a, a significant power base. And... Was doing what Vic Arena couldn't do, because I don't think Vic Arena had the force of personality yeah. that that Wild Bill had. Wild Bill was a was like a John Gotti character with none of the negatives. Yeah. Uh, obviously, negatives if we're talking about just no,
1: no. morals and ethics. In, no, in terms of leadership qualities. In terms qualities. of uh,
0: you know he 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 was very flashy and he was very um, enjoyed the headlines, enjoyed being out front uh, as as a uh, organized crime figure you know, it liked all the, the bells and whistles that came along with it, but was a true blue earner. Uh, John Gotti was not an earner, you know, didn't know how to make money. He was
1: you know. in debt all yeah, because yeah. he was a
0: degenerate gambler. Right. Uh, <laughs> was a, was a big, big time, uh, boardroom racketeer as well as uh, a tough guy on the street. So he was kind of like that perfect combination. He was very charismatic. Um, good looking guy, always well-dressed and Alley Boy Persico, I should say Little Alley Boy Persico, at that point was headed to prison on a a parole violation. And he was supposed to uh, um, report to prison in June of 99. And the belief amongst the Persicos was that if Little Alley Boy was off the street, his dad was obviously off the street as well. And with Bill Cattolo as, as, just the ranking, as the ranking member of the Columbo's on the street at that time would m- merely just take over the crime family yeah. and, and edge out the, the Persicos the way that Arena had tried to do uh, a decade earlier. And uh, they decided to kill Cattolo. And Cattolo was, was, was uh, summoned to a meeting uh, in May of 99, um, left his car at a repair shop, and got into the car with... Um, some of uh, the Persicos, and was never seen again.
1: Do you think he had a sense that he was going to be... Because you, uh, you've talked to his son, right? Yeah, he talks... uh, I know that he he told his son, and he had told his either his
0: wife or his girlfriend that he had been called to a meeting by the kid. Got sent for. The it. kid, and the kid was, was little alley boy.
1: So he must have known there was some... It was potential for... He Danger. felt comfortable
0: enough. He felt comfortable enough going without yeah, a, yeah. without any backup. That's true. Um, they killed him in the house. They were saying that he was coming, uh, He was coming to the house ostensibly to meet little Alley Boy, and then when he got in the house, they killed him.
1: Yeah. Okay. So. So Teddy. Persico is obviously part of that Persico faction.
0: Yeah. So There's two
1: two Teddies. Oh, just like two alley
0: boys. Yeah. So (laughs) there's Skinny Teddy and then Teddy, and and I'm 99% sure that the guy that just got indicted is Skinny Teddy, who all of the mob watchers in New York um, have been speculating that that Skinny Teddy was going to take over for Andy Mush.
1: Once these old guys are out of the way. Right. Right. And that it was almost. But uh, he's probably not that young either, t- Teddy. Right at this point. I
0: think he's in his fifties c- or sixties. Compared to the eighty-year-old yeah. guys, yeah, he's yeah. young. But uh, I know that Jerry Capace, um from Gangland News wrote a story in the last year about uh, how Skinny Teddy and uh, Joe Waverly, uh, Kach- uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, C A C C E, Catchy, I think it's Catchy. Uh, uh, Joe, they call him Joe Waverly. Um, that, that, that the job as a successor to Andy Mush ha- was coming down to uh, Joe Waverly and Skinny Teddy. Um, Joe Waverly is another guy that recently got out of, of serving a long prison term and uh, was heavily involved in, in that power struggle. Um that Kakachi? Kakachi or Catchy? yeah. Um, back in the 90s, um, there, there was a lot of talk that he was the consigliere now, but according to the federal government, it's throughout Di DiMatteo who nobody had ever heard of, which is another example, uh, that I, I, I don't understand why there are certain people in the mob watching community that are so, um, married to this notion that if you haven't been named in a federal indictment before or if the government hasn't recognized you uh, as a made guy, which, by the way, in order for the government to recognize you as a made guy, you have to be uh, vouched for, I guess, or or, uh, validated by two other made guys that are working with the government um, before they can declare you a made guy. So there's a lot of people that just believe, like, unless unless you've been named as a made member in a federal indictment, you don't exist, and it's like, well, there are a ton of guys, you're talking probably hundreds of guys around the country that have buttons, that have leadership positions, that nobody
1: knows of because they haven't been busted. Yeah, we, maybe we've mentioned this before, but we had Jack Garcia on one time who was infiltrated the Gambino family as Jack Falcone, and he, it was one of our earlier episodes at the other studio we had him on, and he talks about it in his book, and we, we talked about it personally, but he was identifying made guys in the Gambino family and, and the FBI, they were pushing back against them, saying, well, we have never heard of these guys. And Falcone or Garcia was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, yeah. I'm telling you, I have firsthand, I have yeah. firsthand knowledge that these guys are made guys and some of them are high ranking guys. And the FBI was sort of mystified. Well, why, how come we had never heard of them? And it's like, well, I, I don't know why, but what, what does that have to do with like, you know, Sometimes it's a secret society. Like we've pointed out, like there are some guys who fly under the radar. Obviously some guys don't, but some guys do. And I, I agree with you. I don't know why that's so difficult to comprehend. So like Ralph
0: Mateo, again, I've said it three times already on this, on this uh, episode, but that's a name that nobody had ever heard of. Yeah. And now uh, as of uh, you know, Tuesday, September 14th, um, He's the consigliere of the Colombo crime family.
1: Yeah, I mean, it could, yeah, it could be. I mean, some guys fly under the radar. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, according to the federal government, that this, is, this is who was number three on the depth chart uh, with one of the five families, and he is a name that nobody had ever heard of before. Yeah. Um, so, well, I, I, this is a, I digress, but when, when Sal Montana became boss, oh, yeah. when he was only in his 30s, yeah. uh, of the Bananos back
1: in the mid-2000s, late 2000s who would hurt him yeah he i don't think he was on anyone's radar yeah um so let's let me ask you something about the ethics of this criminal justice reform criminal justice is something i'm interested in obviously um do you have i'm not not asking scott bernstein the reporter but scott bernstein the citizen the american citizen uh, how do you feel about an 87 year old and 81 year old dude uh yeah. and another the other dude's in his 80s too like um
0: the three lead defendants in this
1: case being indicted um
0: together uh have a, <laughs> about they're about
1: 300 <laughs> between these three guys <laughs> right right how do you, how do you feel about that we we can break it down at, at, at in a few minutes in terms of from what do we, what does this mean for the war on organized crime but just as a citizen a concerned citizen who cares about social issues and criminal justice reform. How does that strike you to have these 80-year-old dudes yeah. indicted? To
0: me, it's a little perplexing, and I'm not trying to give anyone a free pass, especially when it comes to um, Casalazzo and Andy Mush. You know, Benji the Claw and Andy Mush have been guys that have been, you know, staples uh, of organized crime in New York decades and decades. Um so these are hardcore criminals. They're OGs, if you will. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm not trying to turn them into victims here. But that said, you know, a, a racketeering bust like this, um, when, you, when you break it down to dollars and cents and you brass tax it, you're probably talking to tens of millions of dollars of government resources. Um, and I just question what does taking three geriatrics off the street that are probably, I don't even say probably, all have one foot in the grave anyway, and incarcerating them, you're just going to reshuffle the deck. And I mean, does that, uh, does taking these three guys off mean that you've eliminated the Colombo crime family? No. Cut, I mean, I, I guess you could argue, you know, cutting the, the the head off the snake, if you will. And they did get uh, Teddy Persico, um, who people had talked about as a, a future leader and as a capo, and there were a couple other capos that were, were brought down. But I, I don't know. It just it, it seems like a lot of time, energy, and resources to put three guys in prison that will all probably be dead within two, <laughs> two or three years from now.
1: And so presumably... Again, I, I, I'm not an expert on the Colombo crime family. My guess is that the, these old dudes are not "quote on the street." I'm guessing th- the their crime is that they're accepting tribute. Tribute, yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine they're the dudes on the street extorting labor unions and running scams and and loan sharking and dealing uh, drug trafficking. So. I mean, I understand, but with the RICO charge, like that's that's the point of it. Is you don't have to be the guy who's actually selling the drugs or doing the extortion. So I get it. If you're if you're reaping the rewards of it, then then you you can be indicted. But um, I think
0: I'm looking at the uh, um, at a chart right now. If I'm reading this correctly, Skinny Teddy is one of Carmine Persico's sons.
1: Oh, okay, okay. So. I I don't want to minimize the crimes either because I think uh, labor racketeering is a bad thing. I mean that not as like talking about even criminal justice, just as someone who I'm, you know, a pro-labor union kind of guy, not to get too political as we say. But so I, I don't think that's good. So I'm not trying to downplay the severity of the crimes Loan sharking, I don't know. That, like, that. I guess that doesn't bother me so much, to be honest. But, like, uh, it, or the marijuana trafficking, I don't care about. But the labor corruption, yeah, I, I don't want to see that. I think that's a bad thing. So I don't want to downplay that. But um, when I think but about— if there's,
0: But just to clarify, yeah. if there is labor corruption, I don't believe— got to read through the indictment one more time, but I don't believe that Casalazzo or DiMatteo or, or Russo are actually puppeting— any labor racketeering, like you said, yeah, they, yeah. they're being charged with taking yeah. money Extortion. from the people that were puppeting yeah, yeah. Right. the labor racketeering.
1: Right. So, um, I don't, but when I think about when you have finite resources, and we've talked about this before in different ways in this show, I think about the human trafficking that's going out out there and counterterrorism and, uh, you know, kids that are kidnapped and the, the girl that you research about in Indiana that was yeah,
0: Lawrence Beer. The
1: unsolved murders, uh, drug cartels with decapitations, and just fucking gnarly shit out there. And I think, is this what I want the taxpayer dollars, the Department of Justice and the FBI, going after 87 year old. <laughs> The mafia dudes for uh, these guys should extortion. be in Del Boca
0: Vista on the shuffleboard court <laughs> right, with
1: right, with right. Uh, yeah with uh, the
0: the yeah. and the Seinfeld.
1: No, that's right. Like <laughs> right. I, again, I, I agree with you. I'm not trying to carry water for these guys. I'm not trying to say they're good guys. But you have to choose your battles, right? And I'm um, and I, I'm not saying just necessarily ignore it. I, I don't know what the sort of middle ground would be, but um, it seems to me as you point out, a lot of resources and a lot of effort. That's that's being used towards something when I, I can't help but think there are more important. Well, and and what's what's maybe not more important but more urgent, more urgent but, criminal where, justice issues. Where do we st- so this bus comes
0: down? You know, in in September of of twenty one. Let's just forecast into into a, a year from now, uh, the fall of twenty two. You you don't think that the. Uh, Colombo crime family is going to reorganize. Oh, yeah, you think point. in a year from now there's not going to be a boss, an underboss, yeah. consigliere? Yeah, great point. Um, so y- you're not dismantling the organization by any means. In fact, um, I think there were a lot of people that were surprised not to see Andy Musch's kids or his nephew um, in, the, in this bust. Uh, Billy Russo and Anthony Russo are alleged – um, to be younger members of the crime family that have been mentored by Andy Mush. Um but they were they they were not included in this. Um, so, they're definitely you know the, the the deck will be reshuffled, but at the end of the day, you're still going to have a um, a functioning hierarchy. And w- really, what Jimmy, you pointed this out to me the other day, and and I, and I thought it was a <laughs> great way to to to, to present it was this is like you know for federal prosecutors and FBI agents and ASACs and attorney generals this is the promotion train.
1: Yes. Right. You know,
0: heads on the wall (laughs) are a way to build your resume and move up the move up the chain of command, move up the ladder. Right. So we can sit here and you know dissect it, but to the powers that be in Washington, they're just going to see that you took down the entire administration of the Colombo crime family,
1: right? And, and to them, yeah, that's a that's a you you just made a major dent. Yeah, scored some points. But I, I don't know if you really did, right? And you know what's interesting to tie it into like sort of macro uh, geopolitics. For a while, we know that after nine eleven. We know that the FBI was actually sort of laying off the mobsters in New York because everything was that. Remember, they broke up the Organized yeah. Crime Task Force. So there, was five, so there, was, there were five five families. And yeah, they had their own. They had five individual
0: right. units. That's right. That were, so one unit would wor- work one family. After 9-11, yeah. it's down to now two units working five families. So right. one unit's got three families and the other unit's got two.
1: Right, and that was a direct response to we have to divert resources toward counterterrorism. And um, I think that made sense. And uh, so it's interesting to see this kind of bust in New York. And there's been a couple of other headline grabbing. There was one, like, what, t- about 10 years ago that we wrote about for CBS Detroit. Remember, you and I wrote. Uh, we tied it to Detroit, but we mentioned the New York bust. So we do see this every once in a while. But I wonder if there is something deeper going on here where is the is the DOJ um, – Going to devote more resources to anti-organized crime and less for counterterrorism. Um, I wish I knew the answer. I mean, the last big bust in New
0: York of a of a crime family's administration was the Lucchese's um, about five years ago, I think. Right. Um, and and they were all convicted. Uh, Stevie Wonderboy Creia, Maddie Madonna, um, all convicted on the testimony of uh, John Panisi. Good friend of the OG podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, those guys weren't spring chickens. Yeah. Um, Maddie Madonna was in his 80s. Uh, Stevie Wonderboy Crea, uh, I believe, was in his 60s or 70s. But removing Crea from the street was important because Crea was a, was a major, major shot caller and, and has about, I would say, 15 years left in him. Um, Maddie Madonna, like I said, he, he, he's at the end of the line. Um, the Bananos took a big bust. They didn't nail the boss. I don't think, I think it took down the consigliere, um, and, and maybe some capos. Uh, and I know in both of those crime families in the last couple of years, there's been, um, administration changeovers, um, that were actually called in from, um, leaders in prison. Um, in Lucchese, in Lucchese's case, you had little Vic Amuso um, who pulled Maddie Madonna and, and uh, Stevie Wonderboy Boy Kriya, uh, pulled their stripes from behind bars and installed his own administration and actually threatened um, I don't think he threatened Madonna or Kriya but threatened people that were tied to Madonna or Kriya being like, if these guys don't step down there's going to be problems. Like, it was a bloodless coup, but it threatening violence. And then in, in the Bonanno case, specifically, I think, with, uh, Zinocchio, Porky Zinocchio, who was a uh, consigliere, reputed consigliere, the boss of the bananos at the time, Mikey Nose Mancuso. I know these names get confusing to people that don't study this stuff. So I, <laughs> yeah. Um, but Mikey Nose was upset with the courtroom antics of uh, of Porky and, and another guy who I'm blanking on who it was. But uh, the defense attorneys were trying to prove that Porky wasn't the consigliere by pointing out that there were these rumors that were floating on, on wires kind of nonstop for years and years and who had what position. And he kind of pointed out the fact that on these wires that the government was using as incriminating evidence, they actually were naming different people yeah. as the consigliere. So he's like, well, how do we know if, that my, my client is the consigliere when on these own wires that you're presenting as evidence, you've had five other people mentioned as the consigliere. Yeah. and So those people didn't appreciate right, that. Well, no, no, no. Mikey Mancuso didn't appreciate <laughs> that uh, from behind bars. I, I think he felt like they were making a mockery of the crime family.
1: Oh, oh okay. Um, I, got I understand. In court. And, uh, that it's like de- that it's not stable and like yeah, and yeah. and that, uh, that 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 it's
0: like the inmates running the asylum, <laughs> yeah. And uh, he he punished those guys by
1: uh, again you know pulling their stripes. I know you reported on it in Gangster Report, but I I just don't remember that. What was Amuso's logic? Why why did he do this? Why did he want his other? Uh, he wanted other his guys? own. He
0: wanted his own people in, and it it was uh. Why
1: when he's he's yeah. a lifer?
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm just curious what, like... Uh, I think some of it had to do with the case that they were facing. Oh, I see. Uh, They were facing the um, Mike Meldish murder, um, which was probably the last major mob hit in New York. I know uh, Sally Daz got killed a couple years ago um, by that. It really didn't have anything to do with... People thought that it had to do with, like, a mob... Uh, no. War, but it, it was really like a family. His, his own kid, yeah, right, right, uh, did it. And Sally Daz wasn't even a made guy. No, uh, but he was connected to both the Lucchese and the Bananos well, Mike Shiano, Mel- right? Uh, Mike Meldish wasn't a made guy either, but Mike Meldish was a, a very, very powerful um, associate who was very close with the administration of the Lucchese. He had been a, a leader of the Purple Gang, not the Detroit Purple Gang, but the New York Purple Gang right. of the late seventies, and um, Meldish uh was it seems like some of these problems just uh pop up uh in in an whenever you're talking about someone either ending up dead or demoted the the same problems seem to be uh you know popping up uh whether it be you know obviously stealing money or being disrespectful or sleeping with someone's yeah (laughs) wife or girlfriend uh and I think Mike Meldish was was doing uh, all three of those things oh shit and I and I know that he had um disrespected maddie madonna in some way uh and was also sleeping with someone's wife he shouldn't have been sleeping with and uh was just someone that although was not a maid member carried himself as a maid member and did not take kindly to people telling him what he should and should not do even if that person was the boss of of the family that you
1: belong to Yeah, you know, that's an interesting thing when we talk about, like, the sociology of these different organizations, and and we know that in Detroit—I know we're starting to get all over the place here, but in Detroit and Chicago, you've done a lot of your reporting on these two organizations— Non-Italian guys can carry a lot of weight, and some in some cases, even arguably more stature than, yeah. than a made guy who's Italian. New York, it seems not like the case. Remember, No, it's not the case. Remember Michael Francis? He when he was on our show, he said in New York, if you're not a made guy, you're nothing. Yeah, like, I don't care how much you're an earner. Like like that, they're very a lot more rigid. about... About that. You're always so. going to be a second-class citizen if you're Jewish. Right. Or if you're
0: black or you're Middle right. Eastern or you're Polish or you're Irish. Right. In At least in Chicago and Detroit. Yeah, it doesn't seem you to You can be, the case. be a ethnicity that's not Italian and you can run your own crew. You can run yeah. your own, you run your own um, faction of the city.
1: You yeah. can have...
0: Authority to murder people without having to clear it with with the higher ups. You could we, have.
1: They had the episode with Elaine Smith from the FBI about it was Tokyo th- Joe, the
0: Japanese dude in yeah. Chicago, who was a
1: Tokyo <laughs> Joe Ito
0: was a major major <laughs> player God. in Chinatown in the North Side, and he had you know as much power as as many of the made guys.
1: Yeah, and you you've had instances in in Detroit right. where Freddie the Saint Salem yeah. and General Hilf. and those guys. Get closer to the administration yeah. than any soldier. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Alan Helf was a,
0: a, was a Jewish guy, you know, biggest bookmaker in the state of Michigan for decades, one of the biggest bookmakers in the country. Um, and nobody was closer to Jackie Giacalone than, no. than Alan Helf. He was with him every day, right, right? He was. He was his. He couldn't officially be the consigliere, but he was the consigliere.
1: Yeah. So it, it's interesting the cultural differences. Like that doesn't seem to be the case in New York. Like it just seems to be more rigid about enforcing the old school. Uh and that, you know, that's a thing now we're, you know, we're historically, um th- those cultural differences, I think Lucky Luciano sort of viewed it maybe more from like the Detroit or Chicago guys. And then you had pushback but who was from but who the was his, guys. his best friend. That's what I mean. Luciano's best friend was Myel lansky <laughs> right, right. Right. So but then he had pushback from Joe banano and those guys that were like, that's not how it's it, not how it yeah. should be. <laughs> so and, and in the end it seems like in New York those other guys won out. But we're in the Midwest. It seems different.
0: I'm just, as we're talking, I'm just, this is kind of crystallizing in my head. And I I know we're, again, we're all over the place. I'm going backwards to um, the Columbos. But we know how slow the legal system moves. I mean, this thing ain't going to hit trial for two years. You know, best case scenario, this thing's in trial in 23 or late 22. I mean, isn't there a, Decent chance, that, like these guys aren't alive to see in trial. Probab- yeah, in terms yeah. of h-
1: human, like uh, you know, probability. Yeah, I mean, and when they do show up, you know, they're going to have their oxygen. Yeah, it's like
0: like an like in casino,
1: <laughs> right in the wheelchairs and their oxygen. So, you know, I don't know what to make of this. You know, and it's, you know, if we had the official FBI spokesperson, I, I, I know already know what they would say when they would they would reject my premise and say it's not a matter of human trafficking or counterterrorism or the Colombos. We go after all of the above, and it's about keeping New York safe, keeping the country safe. I know that's what they would say, but I'm talking about more from, like, but let's be real here, okay? Like, presumably, these are sources, resources that could be going toward, um, yeah, I mean, I think human trafficking, I mean, I just think that that, if you're talking about real human suffering, I think a lot more people are suffering in terms of human rights from sex trafficking than than loan shark than yeah. the Colombos running a fucking and Andy loan Mo-
0: sharking operation. And, and let, let me just color up a little bit with Andy Mush. I really am not trying to, as Jimmy says, carry his water or, or turn him into a victim. Andy Mush has been leading the Colombo crime family on a day-to-day basis on the street for over twenty years. So he's had a pretty long run. Hasn't been um, behind bars since the early 90s. Uh, I, In fact, I think he might have, I'm not positive, but I think he might have gone down with Junior Persico in that 85, 86 commission bust. Wow. Um, And had to do like eight, I think he was in prison from 86 to 94. I think he did uh, eight years. Wow. Came out in 94 and um, helped stabilize the crime family in the wake of the war. Um, so, I mean, he, yes, he's 87, and um, I'm questioning the the rationale of, of spending all that uh, time, energy, and resources on, on a guy that is literally <laughs> got one foot in the grave. But he he is a he is a major target because of the 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 power that he's wielded in you know in New York. Uh, since the turn of the century.
1: Yeah, and I'll just, let me just say something else. That I, I know we'll talk about... We've we got to get to the latest on the Persico controversy, but one thing you and I have talked about is interesting, the mixed messages from the FBI, which is that sometimes when they make a major bust, they say, stake through the heart. This is it. Mafia's gone. They're nothing. The street gang... And then Teflon no and, more. And, Everything right, sticks like Velcro. Right. Until the next bust. And then they say, see, we told you the mafia's still around. They're yeah, still yeah. <laughs> they're not going anywhere anytime soon. It's like, well, wait a minute. You just I thought like five years ago you were telling us that they were dead and buried. So can you make up your mind? Like so I, I find it interesting, depending on, you know, whatever narrative they want to spin, we get we get mixed messages. So well let's uh let's
0: pivot to the 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 Controversy around Carmine Persico, the uh, namesake of of this mob dynasty that we're we're dissecting. Uh, You know, we we were talking about Andy Mush and Benji the Claw as being, you know, true OGs. (laughs) It doesn't get more OG uh, than Carmine Persico, Uh, just LCN to the core, um, a mobster in every ounce of his uh, DNA. Um, a guy that, if you talk to people that were friendly with him, you know loved being a gangster. Like some people grow up. Um, and they want to be a lawyer or a doctor or or play center field for the Yankees or, <laughs> or a start in the backcourt for the L.A. Lakers, uh, Carmine Persico, from a very, very young age, wanted to be a gangster. There's a famous photo of him being booked um, oh, into yeah. NYPD when he's like 13 or 14.
1: Yeah, badge uh, of honor. Yeah, <laughs>
0: uh, where he's being booked for some, some act of violence he had done in, as a young man. I think he uh, allegedly started... Uh, doing hits when he
1: was 15, 16 years old. He started off being one of Crazy Joey Gallo's, yeah. like, uh, protégés. He, he he turned on him. So, but. I mean, it was blasphemy
0: when the New York Daily uh, News came forth with this front-page story uh, about a month ago. Um, Larry McShane and uh, another reporter that I'm... Um, I don't have the name in front of me, but there was two of the the top crime reporters... Um, at the New York uh, Daily News. Larry McShane, I have a lot of respect for, has, has um, written a ton on, on the New York uh, Mafia. He also uh, replaced me on the Ralph Natale book when I uh, <laughs> I jumped off that project pretty quickly when when I couldn't come to terms with Ralph on, on, on money and what we were going to be saying or not saying in the manuscript. I, I did not want to put my name to some of the stuff that Ralph was um, saying... Uh, and, and demanding that go in that manuscript. So I ended up leaving, and Larry McShane ended up taking my place. So I have a lot of respect for Larry McShane. Did you
1: read that book, by the way? But McShane? Do you not want to? Am I putting you on the yes. spot? Yes. <laughs> okay, yes, I have. Okay, should have put you on um, the spot publicly. He, uh,
0: Well, you know, again, I like, <laughs> I, I'm digressing. Yeah. I, I got to know Ralph Natale uh, pretty well uh, for about a year. Um, he's a very likable man. Um, he's a great storyteller. He is someone that I could see how he could con a bunch of young up-and-coming um, mob aspirants um, mm-hmm. to kind of get behind him um, in, in in becoming a godfather like he did in the 90s. Yeah. But the <laughs> all due respect to Ralph and all due respect to, to his team, the shtick kind of starts to wear thin after a while. Ralph is a legend in his own mind <laughs> and refuses to take – Real ownership of reality. um and he likes to kind of craft his own uh, reality, this kind of fictional um, narrative that uh, he was a a bigger deal than he actually was, that he was actually you know, even though he went under oath uh, at trial and and said that he he quote unquote, made himself. Because if you have the balls, you can make yourself. That's what he said. Um, so he admitted that he had never gotten a button um, before he came out of prison in the '90s, which was a um, was a pretty big deal, and, and it and, and it was the opposite of of traditional mob protocol, and and raised a lot of eyebrows, not just in um, Philadelphia, but in in New York. I think there were a lot of people being like, "How can this guy come out of prison after 20 years and just yeah, declare yeah. that he's the boss?" Well. In his book, he wanted to write that he actually had been made back in the 60s by Carlo Gambino and, and Angelo Bruno in a secret ceremony, and that he kept that from the government. Oh, wow. And I'm just like, Ralph, I'm not writing that. <laughs> like, I'm not. You went under oath and, and, and spoke to how you were made, and frankly, if you're lying about it, you're, they should they have the right to come and take your deal away and put you back in prison. Yeah. So, uh, again, long story short, I like Ralph. Um, but uh, Ralph was—he, what he—the the stories that he spun were quite rich, yeah—and um, and difficult to digest.
1: But Larry, but, in fairness to Larry, he also did a good book about the chin and the chin. and, so. he's, and he, you know,
0: I'm not—I'm not criticizing Larry at all. Yeah, right. I, 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 I'm in debt to Larry for taking over my job because <laughs> <laughs> right. I had done a job for for a year and I, I didn't want to see the whole thing fall apart. Sure. Like I said, I like Ralph. I wanted to see him get his book out. Um, so. The New York Daily News is covering the appeal process for Little Vic Arena, who we just mentioned as um, one-time acting boss for Persico, turned rival, um, was on the other side of the of the power struggle in the 90s.
1: He's got to be like 100 years He's old, He's in too. his late
0: 80s. Jesus. And Arena's trying to get a compassionate release. And uh, actually, reading some of his case filings, I actually think he— He has some decent legal standing um, to to eventually see the light of day before he uh, passes on. But uh, within some court filings in his case, his attorney was able to come upon a 1971 FBI document that lists uh, Persico as a confidential informant. And this was a bombshell. Um, when they decided to, to to put this on the front page. It had a lot of blowback, though, uh, and a lot of pushback um, coming from the Persico, uh, Team Persico, if you will. And quickly thereafter, you had a sentiment and a narrative, a counter-sentiment and counter-narrative that was being launched by Jerry Cupaci as well as other uh, major um, crime writers in New York that were claiming, although the New York Daily News might might have been in good faith, um, that they weren't maliciously trying to smear Persico's name, that they were misreading the document or misinterpreting the document. So Capace actually um, headlined his uh, weekly column a week or two after the, the New York Daily News report on why he was certain that Persco was not an informant. Um, so I mean, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but
1: he, it, he's saying that the that the intel is coming from an unreliable right. wh- whoever provided that intel was an unreliable. Yeah, so there are, informant. there are, I think
0: there are two um two things here. You have one that the source of this information, as Jimmy said, is coming from Greg Scarpa. Um, the Grim Reaper. And without having to do do a whole deep dive into Greg Scarpa, uh, very, very ruthless, maniacal, manipulative uh, gangland figure that uh, was playing both sides of the fence for decades, was one of the most feared mafia hitmen, enforcers, earners, on the street throughout the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and early 90s, but at the same time, he's working with the FBI um, dating back to the early 1960s. He was working when he got opened as an FBI informant in 1962. Um, he was briefly closed as an FBI informant between 76 and 79, but then was reopened in 1980 and uh, until he died uh, in prison. And... The information of Persico being an informant in nineteen seventy one is coming from Scarpa, who like you said there's some serious credibility issues
1: does does Jerry have any theories as to why Scarpa would have given that disinformation no i I haven't yeah either i either know or I haven't seen it or I'm unaware yeah, okay, so but, I mean, but then there's a second thing here that I
0: think. Um, bodes well for uh, calling this bogus is that in addition to Carmine Persico being outed, quote-unquote, or named as a confidential informant in this document, there was like another 15 very, very, very high-ranking mafia members in New York that were also named as confidential informants, including Paul Castellano.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And Crazy Joe Gallo. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He's just throwing everything,
0: everyone but the kitchen sink out out there. So, I mean, is it possible that Castellano, Persico, and Gallo were all uh, secretly confidential informants? Yes. I mean, I'd say it's possible. Sure. But I tend now, after doing my due diligence, to side with Capace and the counter narrative that this was, yes, this was a document that was saying what the New York Daily Post was reporting, but uh, I, I kind of believe that they, they probably should have vetted the document a little bit more thoroughly. And and then you can't, you know, you can't take back headlines. Right. And that headline was, Snake is a Rat. Yep, yep, yeah. And that headline's going to be there forever. Yeah, and this, yeah. This is, I don't uh... know if the snake was a rat. I would doubt the snake was a rat. And if the snake was a rat, I said this to you when it first came out. I could see it pop and, and this also plays plays into how there's a, there's this this cat and mouse game going on uh, and on a daily basis between the, the good guys and the bad guys in the mafia. and the lines can blur so easily and guys can st- on both sides can, can step on the other side of the line. Easily, or or without people knowing, so I think there, it's possible that Persico was giving information in the '60s. Yeah, I mean, and then but wasn't giving information. The the implication from the article was that while Persico was the godfather of the yeah. Columbos and while he was leading this war, that was you know, littering the streets with bodies in the 90s that he was actually an informant, which would have told you that there were two informants that the FBI, if you believe it. So then the FBI had two different informants that were feeding them information about the war from the inside, but they still couldn't stop it.
1: Well, the, there's a lot to unpack there because first of all, my, the first thing that struck me was when that big headline came out that, that uh, he was a snitch, my, my reaction was f- to what end? Like we know why Whitey Bolter was, we know why Gravano did, we know why Scarpa did. So, but but Carmine, is, this guy spent almost his entire well, life, life in, jail. in prison. <laughs> right. So so right away, I'm thinking, well, what was in it for him? Like like that. First of all, that this didn't make sense to me. Like not not that he was incapable, because one thing we know is that anybody can be a snitch. And sh- shameless self promotion here. If you listen to our episode we dropped this week on um, El Chapo. Noah Hurwitz talks about how it's well-known that El Chapo, on multiple was occasions— Was giving information was g- back in the 90s. Right to the, to D- the DEA. DEA right? yeah. so, so nobody is, like, exempt from being potentially cooperating right. in some form. So, because at first—
0: And how know, did El Chapo—at the end of the day, how did El Chapo go down? He went down because his two most trusted— associates or, or or lieutenants in chicago yeah. the flores brothers flipped
1: that's right right so everybody like yeah. th- like you like you've said multiple times there is no omerta yeah. <laughs> so um now i admit yeah my intuitively i'm thinking oh persico's probably not that kind of guy but like who knows we you're right we don't know but so all we can go by then is evidence-based what would be in it for him look at the problems the holes you're talking about with that with that document i, I think right now you i agree with you we we can't say that he's a, i don't i'm not i'm not convinced I think that think my he's biggest a snitch. my biggest issue from a or was a from a
0: journalist perspective is not that it was reported because i think it, it was okay to report that sure i didn't like the
1: headline yeah
0: I, I think that was an irresponsible headline
1: no and this this happens i, I don't want to like bore our audience but i teach a course on crime and media and we talk about this like reporting of crime and ethics and a case study we look at from the um uh 80s is the the crack baby um reporting and that was everywhere right crack babies and then and then it turns out that 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 really wasn't a thing but the media did not devote the same amount of because we know this through content analysis they didn't it wasn't even close to the same amount of reporting that uh you know we got that one wrong like there there really isn't like that's not really a thing, so um, I know that's not gangster stuff. But 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 that's just to your point that once the genie's out of the bottle, right? To use a cliche, <laughs> you can't put it back. Can't put in. it. Once the toothpaste is out of the tube, <laughs> right? can yeah. So so that that's to your point though. Then that reporters and editors have and publishers have a responsibility. The,
0: to me, that's that's not on Larry McShane though. That's right, on right. the editor. No, hundred percent. Yeah. And, 100%. and again, I'll digress and I'll I'll give you a, a ninety-second window into something. That I experienced firsthand with this, I might have told this story on the OG before, but I don't think I have. But I wrote a story about ten years ago for my newspaper about it was the 30 year anniversary of Tim Allen's Coke bust, and I I, I don't apologize for reporting that. Sure, um, it was it was legitimate news. It was the week of the 30 year anniversary, um, but my editor and the the powers that be at my newspaper. Without my clearance or, or okaying it, decided to splash it on the front page of the paper, making it look like Tim Allen had just took a Coke bus in 2010. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And then he got all upset. Tim Allen got yeah, upset. Yeah, I, I and telling, I, yeah. I remember telling him. And I had to go to a meeting with Tim Allen on an um, intercom or in a conference call. With him and his mom. And it was like 60-year-old Tim Allen and his 80-year-old mom calling me and my editor at the newspaper to yell at us. But, again, I I was like, listen, I I understand why you're upset, but you shouldn't be upset with me. Be upset with editorial. Yeah, the gatekeepers, Right. Like, I have no problem or I have no uh, qualms or regrets writing that story. But if it was – if I was editorial that day – there's no way that I'm putting that on the front page, at center of the – as the as like the first thing you see when you pick up the newspaper when it's something that happened 30 years ago. But you're kind of I, – I don't know if they were intentionally misleading people or not, but it's almost like you're intentionally misleading people to believe that Tim Allen was just arrested uh, for, for cocaine possession.
1: Yeah, and that, that goes back to the – Media model that's like it's it's about clicks and you, you yeah. like you we'll, we'll worry that about was, that later. That was at the early early stages yeah. of
0: of the, we'll the, worry the, about the, the, the click uh, the obsession with clicks and yeah. how you're going to sell your sell your soul to the devil for right. for for just you know ten more clicks.
1: But let me just say something going back to your point about if if there were two high level informants in the Columbos, why weren't they able to stop the war? And, and what I mean by there's a lot to unpack there is, there is this argument that. Uh, is it uh, Del Vecchio? Yeah, Lynn Delvecchio. Vecchio. That he didn't want the war. That <laughs> just the like, war was good for him. Just just like the argument we talked about last week with Noah. That there's an argument that that DEA, the U.S. and the Mexican government wanted El Chapo to win <laughs> that war. That that the FBI wanted the Scarpa Persico faction to win. Yeah. So I don't know. Like you well, know, there's <laughs> the there was the famous utterance. Oh, yeah, of Lynn Del Vecchio, which was then
0: yeah. Um, Dramatized in the Sopranos. Yeah. Where he's at his desk and he finds out that a a key member of the the anti-Persico faction had been killed and he gets up from his desk and says, We're gonna win this thing.
1: Yeah, right. Yeah.
0: And then in the last, last episode of the Sopranos, uh when they when uh, the Sopranos kill Phil the and it's you know in the FBI office they hear Agent about Harris. it. Aiden
1: Harris. Harris says, We're gonna win this thing. <laughs> <laughs> you get too close to yeah. your get too get close because to your
0: uh, I, I'm pretty sure I, I should not have to be pretty sure. I should be sure that uh, in the last episode of Sopranos, didn't Agent Harris kind of tip off? Yeah, the Sopranos. That's how they knew where Phil was. That's how they knew where yeah. where to find him.
1: Yeah. So we don't have a lot of time left. You want to run to jump into the other stuff? Yeah, you we'll just do a, we'll do a
0: quick couple um, of other New York yeah, related. Two, two, um, two things of note when we're talking about outlaw biker gangs. The outlaws, which are the preeminent outlaw biker gang in the Midwest. Um, They've always been based in the Midwest, uh, either in Chicago or Detroit. And this is dating back, uh, depending on what biker historian you're you're talking to, some biker historians uh, date the outlaw motorcycle group all the way back uh, into the 30s and 40s. Um, You know, I think it's this current... um, iteration if you will of the outlaw biker gang i think really didn't start probably to the late 60s um but uh have always been a, a midwest uh biker crew um as a result the hell's angels have always stayed away from from uh for the most part from from detroit and chicago um but now for the first time in the history of the outlaws motorcycle club the seat of power if you will is in new york in Western New York, specifically.
1: Yeah, things have changed. Um,
0: and uh, Tommy O. Uh, so um, uh, Tommy Ermine, or Thomas, or no, I take it back. John Ermine um, has been outed uh, by the by the federal government in court filings related to some cases in Buffalo uh, recently um, as the new uh, international president of the Outlaws Motorcycle Gang. John Ermine, who goes by the nickname Tommy O. Um, and Tommy O, according to the government, is very close to the Buffalo Mafia um, and is tied into the Todaro crime, uh, crime family. And the Todaros, um, just like a lot of uh, crime families around the country, have a uh, control over the strip club industry in western New York. And their kind of headquarters of, of, of those endeavors are in uh, Cheek uh, which is right outside of Buffalo, at a uh, strip club called Pharaoh's, oh, which yeah. is owned by uh, Big Joe Todaro's his nephew. or nephew. So- yeah, his, his
1: nephew. His nephew. Yeah.
0: And Tommy O, um, according to these court documents, is the head of security at Pharaoh's, has been for 10 years, and uses Pharaoh's as a nerve center mm-hmm. of the outlaw's, Uh, business affairs, if, if they're not at the clubhouse, um, he can be found at Pharaoh's. And according to these documents, he holds church, uh, which, which is a code for their, their, their their weekly club meetings every Wednesday night, they shut down Pharaoh's uh, at least for a couple hours. Uh, so, so all the outlaws from Buffalo can come and have their uh, weekly meeting, um, in front of Tommy O.
1: Do you see? You've done a lot of reporting on the Pagans, who were also making a big push in um, across the United States,
0: but specifically the East Coast.
1: But specifically the East Coast. Do you do you see any like uh, conflict? Uh, I, in the I I think future? I would
0: have, but Conan the Barbarian, who is the national president of the Pagans, is going to prison. Yeah. Um. He he pled out. Uh, of a case that he was facing, um, he's going to have to do at least two years. And the Pagans, as as you mentioned, were in the middle of a expansion effort that Conan O'Brien. Sorry, not Conan O'Brien. Oh my God, the again, comedian. But, wow. Oh wow. That Conan the <laughs> Barbarian, Keith Richter, who goes by the nickname Conan the Barbarian. Um, <laughs> they they call him that because he kind of resembles uh, Schwarzenegger? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Character, or a, I guess at one time he kind of. Um, look like Arnold Schwarzenegger in the movie Conan the Barbarian. Um, But uh, Keith Richter, a.k.a. Conan the Barbarian, um, put forth a mandate that he called the the blue wave. And in the last couple years, they've opened like 10 new chapters across the East Coast. But then they pivoted and began going west. So when you combine the fact that it looks like their East Coast expansion was completed, and then they turned their attention to going actually f- closer to the Hells Angels. They yeah. put chapters in Oklahoma, Texas, and Arizona. Um, and then within like... Arizona's especially. Uh, yeah. that That's that's crazy. And within a couple months of putting in one of their chapters in, in Texas, there was a shootout at a club in San Antonio amongst Hells Angels and Pagans. Um, so because of... The fact that the blue wave mandate seems to be headed west and the fact that uh, Conan the Barbarian is off the streets for a couple of years, I don't think um, the pagans and, and the outlaws would be bumping heads. But if that hadn't been the case and you had uh, the outlaws under Tommy O who are doing their own expansion effort, um, they're doing a New England expansion.
1: Which also used to be Hell's Angels
0: yes, territory. specifically... Uh, Vermont, Massachusetts, Maine, and New Hampshire, and uh, Rhode Island, uh, they've also s- quietly opened up five new chapters in the Midwest, um, which tells me that by moving the seat of power to Buffalo, they needed to strengthen their ranks, uh, kind of where the the home base um, in the Midwestern part of the United States so, they, they ramped up the numbers um, in Illinois, uh, Indiana, and Ohio.
1: So, it's a real interesting realignment that we're seeing uh, in the outlaw biker club world. And,
0: well, especially the fact you know, that it's interesting that Tamio that is from Buffalo, and you just have never had a boss of the outlaws. And, I'm, and you're talking about dating back 50 years, maybe longer, depending on which restaurant you're talking to. Um, nobody that has led the outlaws motorcycle gang has been from the from the east coast
1: yeah that's um it'll be interesting to see what happens i mean in the past i mean you would there would be bloodshed but if it, some of these moves were right. happening what's not surprising though <laughs> you know in not, the 80s or 90s. Yeah.
0: What's not surprising, though, is the connection between Tommy O and the Italian Mafia. Because the, no. out, the outlaws, whether they be in Chicago, Detroit, or Buffalo, have always been aligned very closely with the Italian Mafia.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it seems like it. Um, do you want to touch upon that story you just uh, Yeah, and then, the, about- and then the last thing we'll talk about, you uh, know, in a,
0: in a gangland hit straight out of a movie.
1: Yeah, um, you're, we're going to see that in a movie. It's some, somebody's going to use this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> A
0: couple days ago, or, or last week, a former New York underworld figure by the name of Jermaine Rico Dixon, who was one of the founding members of a, a, of a crew called the Patio Gang out of Flatbush, Brooklyn, um, that was kind of a, a, a drug stick-up crew in the early 90s, um, I think into the mid to late 90s, um, Mostly guys that trace their, their heritage to, to Jamaica. Um, Jermaine Dixon's brother, Emil, was actually the, the boss of the patio gang. So, Emil and Jermaine went down in a 2000 bust. Uh, Emil was sentenced to life in prison. Jermaine was sentenced to 20 years. Um, came out of prison last November. And then last week, Uh, He was, I guess, staying at a comfort inn uh, in Ozone Park, Queens, and there was a hitman waiting for him by his car dressed as a Hasidic Jew um, in a long uh, black trench coat and on a black hat. Um, There are are parts of Queens that are um, just... (laughs) Uh, filled with with these uh hasidic jews that are that are dressed in the traditional garb right. um and this hitman was waiting for for dixon for like
1: for hours for right? hours
0: yeah out in and pretending to be fixing his car he had his his um uh, his uh uh not his trunk what's it called uh, <laughs> he had the his hatchback. no the front of your car Oh, the hood.
1: The hood. (laughs) It's a long, long It's the Motor City, (laughs) Scott. Yeah. (laughs) Come
0: on. (laughs) He had the hood hood open uh, to his car, pretending like he was having engine problems. Um, And he was, like, sitting in front of his car for, like, three or four hours. And within those three or four hours, Jermaine Dixon had come out to his car a couple times. And then uh, finally... Jermaine Dixon comes out to his car and, and starts to leave, and the hitman, dressed as a Hasidic Jew, leaves the hood of his car uh, and, and comes and, and, and unloads a clip into Rico Dixon, killing Rico Dixon immediately. Um, there is a heavy belief on the street right now and in law enforcement circles that this was revenge for one of the murders that the patio gang Was responsible for back in the 90s. Uh, Rico Dixon was the trigger man in a 1992 gangland homicide uh, of a a rival uh, drug lord by the name of um, Alphonse Gooden, Alfonso Gooden, who went by the nickname Juke or Juju. um, And and Rico Dixon allegedly pulled the trigger in his murder and then was also involved in a conspiracy um, allegedly uh in a 1999 murder of a guy named robert raga thompson who was a a marijuana dealer um who who fell out of favor with the with the dixon brothers and the belief uh, from talking to some people that i know in new york yesterday the belief is that the hitman was a relative of either um gooden or thompson
1: yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. So uh, any f- no knowledge from your reporting, is so was the Patio Gang, were these guys affiliated with, like, the, the Shower Posse and, like, some I, I of them are know. well-known?
0: I had never really heard of the Patio Gang, And to be I, honest with you.
1: And I wonder if those guys had any interactions with, like, Haitian Jack. I mean, I, I understand that Haiti and Jamaica are yeah. two different places,
0: but I'm just— I just guess they were called someone. the Patio Crew because as teenagers, they all used to hang out at a restaurant called The Patio in, okay. in Brooklyn, so that was kind of their, their home base— so they just became known as the Patty. Yeah, but it,
1: it definitely was pretty conspicuous, but I, I I, agree with you. At least all indications are now that this was more of a vendetta than a kind of, like... Something that happened in the last... He's been out of prison for a right. year. This isn't something that's happened,
0: or at least the belief right now is that this, this isn't something that happened in the last eight months.
1: Yeah, yeah, this isn't like a turf war or yeah, something. It seems it, like a vendetta. And according to his parole officer,
0: I guess he had been telling his parole officer that he felt like he was being stalked, Um. And that he was constantly going out to his car to check if someone was uh, messing with his brakes or, or maybe putting a bomb in his car. Um, so it, it fits that uh, in that surveillance video, you saw you see him go from the comfort end to his car like four or five times before he's actually killed. Yeah. Um, so he was he knew that uh, there were people gunning for him, and uh, it, it actually reminds me little, a little bit of the Sally Daz hit um, that we referenced earlier, the, the um, Sal- Salvatore Zatola, who they called Sally Daz, who, who was was murdered on the orders of his own son, but right. we didn't know that at the time. Right. But he survived a number of brazen attempts yeah, on his right. life right. that were one. caught yeah. on video surveillance. Yeah. So he knew that it was coming too. They eventually got Sally Daz in a... A fast food uh, drive-through yeah, line at McDonald's. Dom- right.
1: Yeah. Um, so. And that—that that was initially they thought maybe that was mafia related. Or Alba- turn-
0: or the Albanians right. or, or, or the
1: Bloods. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, because that dude was definitely mobbed up, but it turns out it was yeah. just it was his with son. his son. His son wanted over- his business. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so, uh, but the, but I guess what what we're
0: saying is it, it violence might uh, overall in the mafia ha- has been reduced. But that doesn't really mean anything to the non-Italian mafia right. factions of, of, of criminal groups in America, especially in New York. Um, these are ruthless, ruthless individuals that will, um, you know, really at any cost uh, get done what they're trying to get yeah, done. Yeah, you
1: still see, I mean, it, I mean, Chicago. I mean, if you just look at the statistics, Detroit, still a lot of New York, still a lot of plaguing. Uh, actually, yeah. it seems like it's down in L.A., Gangland violence, but um, quite a bit, significantly. But but other cities, you're right, it's still it's still a big problem. But this was,
0: I mean, this was the way this was done. The you know the kind of theatrics that were involved in this particular hit. Oh yeah, hit,
1: yeah, yeah, stunning. You,
0: you'd think that this, the, whoever was the perpetrator knew that once the, that he did this, that this, was, this wasn't this was just an ordinary no. hit where someone comes and shoots him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was dressed yeah. as a acidic Jew, this was going to get a ton of yeah, headlines. It's, it's
1: very conspicuous. Yeah. Um, so um, as we wrap up here, hopefully, um, just shifting gears here, when we come back next week for a recording, hopefully we'll have some news about a project with the History Channel Bernie and I are working on. Uh, potential uh, documentary on. And Jimmy then well, there's Hoffa.
0: another potential project overseas that we might yeah, have a little right. might have a little information for the yeah. for the peeps
1: coming down the, <laughs> yeah, so, coming down the pike. So we're busy dudes here. So anyhow, uh, want to thank everyone for listening. Please follow us at Gangster Podcast on. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're trying to get some TikTok videos. We also got stuff in the works for video content. A lot of people asking us about video content. Believe me, we're aware. Scott and I have been talking about this for months. we, we It's on our horizon. Um, it's just a radar. matter of uh, getting our ducks in a row and, and making that happen. So a lot of exciting things happening. We appreciate everyone listening. Uh, for Jimmy Bucciolato, Scott Bernstein, we're out.